so much damaging carbon is generated by everyday human activity, particularly transport. And whether we're commuting to work, visiting family or exporting goods abroad, we're utterly dependent on transport and we always will be. This is Grant Shapps, Secretary of State for Transport in the United Kingdom, speaking in July about the publication of a crucial new document. But what if we had a solution to decades of rising emissions, a solution for every type of transport that meant we could carry on travelling where we want, when we want, without harming the environment? Well, actually, we do. The document is called Decarbonising Transport, a better, greener Britain. And it is in the UK's Transport Decarbonisation Plan. It sets out the government's commitments and the actions needed to decarbonise the entire UK transport system. It's nothing less than the world's first ever, not blue, but green print to end transport contributions to global warming by 2050. In his forward to this document, which we've linked to in the show notes, Shapps points out that transportation fundamentally shapes our towns, our countryside, our health and our lives. The mission to decarbonise transport in the face of the climate emergency impacts society far more broadly than people realise. Yet he emphasises that the process of decarbonisation is not about stopping people from doing things. It is about doing the same things differently. But is that really possible? And can it happen quickly enough? Take it away, Grant. And today, we're going to hear how pioneering change is already happening. How Britain is on the verge of a transformational, irreversible green transport revolution. Hello and welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Alex Conacher. And I'm Rian Owen. This is the final episode in our series of specials in the run-up to COP26. For this episode, we've partnered with Mott McDonald to talk about the decarbonisation of transport. Decarbonisation will require us to leverage improvements to green technologies and adapt to new ways of thinking and organising. It will require us to make different choices on an individual and collective level. In this episode, we will learn about a new concept known as the Transport Energy Nexus. We'll learn about how government is advised on the best climate policies to take, and we will learn about a new hydrogen hub planned for the northeast of England. But first, we need to understand a little bit more about how the experts weigh the risk and decide our climate strategies. And for that, we need to speak to Owen Devane, Senior Analyst for Transport at the Climate Change Committee. We're the UK's independent advisor on climate change mitigation and adaptation. So what we do is we basically provide advice and analysis to the government recommending decarbonisation pathways. The Climate Change Committee's big moment was in 2019, when its recommendation that the UK reach net zero carbon emissions by 2050 was adopted by the government, making the UK the first major country to commit to such a target in law. The CCC recently published its sixth carbon budget, a report to government setting out the emissions that should be allowed within the period 2033 to 2037. It is the first of their five-year carbon budgets to be set after their net zero by 2050 advice. The CCC also releases a series of what it calls pathways. 
These are potential scenarios we might encounter, each relying on certain assumptions. For example, does the government push one technology or does it push another? Owen himself comes from a mathematical background. Did a PhD in applied mathematics, um, which was initially very theoretical in focus, looking at systems of differential equations that govern particular, particular dynamical systems. That spun out into looking at methods of optimizing and stabilizing power grids, which is kind of where my interest in our sort of energy system comes from. Following that, though, I was keen to get into something a bit more real world in nature. So he joined the civil service and moved around for a few years, doing things utterly unrelated to energy systems or to climate. And then decided to move over to the CCC to work on what I think is really the preeminent challenge of our time. And he became the senior analyst leading the CCC's work in the transport sector. Traditionally, we've taken up the CCC a sort of sectoral-led approach. So each of our reports has a chapter on each different sector of the economy, mapping out trajectories for how that sector needs to, needs to decarbonize and then tracking progress against those pathways. So my sector is transport, specifically covering surface transport. So cars, trucks, vans, rail, etc. And the shipping side of things, looking at domestic and international shipping, looking at pathways to decarbonize each of those. And as might be expected, a lot of the thinking revolves around the car tailpipe, which is a key battleground. It is, yes. It's not, not the only battleground, but it is fair to say it's the key battleground. I mean, tailpipe emissions from cars make up 61% in 2019 of all of our surface transport emissions. So it is the majority piece in terms of mitigating, abating emissions from, from surface transport. And this focus on electric vehicles is due to the maturity of the market. We're quite heartened to see things like the government's commitment to phasing out petrol and diesel vehicles by 2030. We're heartened to see the increasing range of vehicles coming to market and the ever falling prices of batteries as well, leading to, leading to better, more cost-effective vehicle purchases. So this market's kind of already beginning to scale up quite impressively. I think we're almost at 10% of new, all new vehicle sales being fully electric this year, which is pretty impressive. It's really risen quite a lot, but 10% still means there's a long way to go. And if you look in our scenarios, all of them require over 90% of new sales by 2030 to be fully electric. And so that's a pretty steady ramp up, pretty rapid ramp up we need over this period. There isn't a list of individual level choices that the CCC wants people to adopt. They look more at an aggregate of what needs to happen. For example, the electric car uptake. Although they are technologically agnostic, they see potentially 25 million on the roads by 2035. We also have those assumptions around demand reduction for car travel, which fundamentally means we need people to think about their transport choices in a more sustainable manner, which again, as well, to invest in 
those alternatives, those sustainable alternatives, which ties into aspects like planning of new housing developments. We need to see people given those options. We don't want to just see houses built where no one can, no one has any choice but to drive. We want to see houses built in a way that they they give people the choice to cycle, to walk, to take the bus, to take the train where they can. This behaviour angle is another big part of the committee's thinking, and we will have two specialists later in the episode talking about just that. There is another aspect of Owen's work that is becoming more important as time goes on, and that is the idea of multimodal thinking. A mesh of industries and sectors. It's something that Mott MacDonald calls a nexus. I think what we mean by a nexus is two sectors coming together and thinking differently. This is Craig Lucas. He's the Director of Energy Transformation at Mott MacDonald. And recently he's been thinking a lot more about transport. So for example, a lot of the decarbonisation of rail is finding good, cheap ways to do electrification. And in a way that's part of the core challenge of railway infrastructure. If you look at an airport, for example, in the future, planes might have different energy sources. There might be electric, there might be some hydrogen planes, there might be sustainable aviation fuels, and helping them to sort of future-proof their decisions is, is all part of it as well. I think I'd define it as a place where people come together and we create something that the, the synergies are greater than the sum of their parts. By treating the things as an integrated system of systems and not just as two different sectors. I think that systems thinking is really at the heart of it. I'll give you an example. If you if you think about electric vehicle charging and smart charging and the ability to arbitrage and use, use vehicle charging as storage, you get much more value out of that if you think of it in terms of the wider system. So if you thought about, let, let's imagine someone who had a captive fleet of vehicles like a hospital or an airport or something, Knowing the duty cycle of that fleet means that you know how you can use it for storage and that means you can optimise your energy system differently. So it's that systems thinking that creates value that would not have otherwise been realised. If you went and bought the vehicle fleet and you bought your energy infrastructure separately, you would lose that opportunity. One of the forerunner projects that demonstrate the idea of the Nexus is the Tees Valley Multimodal Hydrogen Transport Hub. The genesis of Tees Valley is that there are a number of industrial players in that area. So you've got some people that are large gas consumers and there's some people that can make hydrogen and you've got people that could do carbon capture because there's pipeline system. So there's some infrastructure there and there are some buyers and sellers. So you've got like the starting point of a potential hydrogen economy. So this is a proposal for a connection between a set of facilities for the production, storage and distribution of green hydrogen. Hydrogen is not a fuel source, but a storage mechanism for energy. Much like petroleum, but in the case of hydrogen, the energy source used to create it determines how green it is. Often hydrogen can be dirty. So-called blue hydrogen is derived from methane from natural gas. But if renewable sources are used to generate the hydrogen, for example from the boom in UK offshore wind, it's known as green hydrogen. This setup is often seen as a renewable to power industry and heavy industrial equipment. In the case of mass market vehicles, it can also power cars and provide heating to houses, although this would require changes in infrastructure. 
The hydrogen transport hub proposal is centred in the Tees Valley in northeast England because there is considerable existing capability there, and it provides a real-world test case for wider rollout of hydrogen in the transport energy sector. That multimodal thinking again. And then the Tees Valley transport project is to look at, right, so if that if those conditions exist, what would the transport market look like? If you if you primed that as a as a target market, how would that play out? And and then what you're gradually starting to do then is build a new economy in effect, build a new supply chain. I mean the, the Northwest cluster's got some similar characteristics because there are people that consume hydrogen today and there are people that make hydrogen. So if you scale that up, what would you do next? Would you do some transport project next? Would you inject it into the gas grid? There's a sequence of steps you could take to end up with a bigger hydrogen economy. And it's helping people to work that through. The Nexus concept effectively answers a chicken and egg problem for energy and transport players. It's a way of bringing an obvious market into being, but one that just needs a little encouragement at the start. And hydrogen is a key technology in a green future. Collectively, this hydrogen transport hub is to constitute a living lab to understand the viability of hydrogen as part of the energy transition in the transport sector. It will also be a seed that allows the technology to scale and blur the boundaries between energy and transport. Here's Owen from the CCC again. In our scenarios, hydrogen can play a role in decarbonising road freight, rail, buses, shipping the extent of this is pretty uncertain. And so one of our one of our key recommendations is that while it's uncertain which technology line the industry will go down, now is the time for planning, for investigation, for developing of powertrains, developing fuel technologies, etc. And importantly, for testing these, and not just testing these in the lab, but testing these in the real world. And so We're pretty heartened to see government's investment in road freight decarbonisation trials over the last year. And these kind of build into something like the Tees Valley Hub, because the Tees Valley Hub, its aim is from, from now onwards, really, until 2025, to be a kind of something of a test lab and seek out opportunities to to be involved in those sort of real-world and lab-based trials. And then, from 2025 onwards, to be a fully operational kind of multimodal transport hub for the use of hydrogen. And that that's really quite important, I think, because that allows you to get those vehicles, in terms of HGVs, but also those ships, those trains, out on the road, out on the sea, out on the rails, and kind of observe how collect data on how the use of hydrogen works in practice for for real world businesses for real world users to i suppose share the message of okay if you're a fleet operator in 2030 2035 trying to decide who where you should buy your next set of vehicles from your biggest question is going to be what sort of fuel should i run them on and if we can have that real world data that shows this is this is the be- these are the set of benefits. These are the costs of moving to a hydrogen vehicle. That's going to be really really valuable in sort of driving forward that that ability for people to commit to the new technology. 
More than anything, it looks at this mesh, this nexus between transport and energy supply. And industry is looking more than ever at the relationships between these sectors. To design or do anything in a low carbon net zero world, you have to think in an integrated, I think the phrase is systems of systems way, and you have to be able to knit it all together. Everything has a part to play. So whether it's the designer, whether it's the road user, whether we're designing for electric vehicles, for example, whether within a rail project, we're trying to move it from diesel to fully electric or even hydrogen trains, they are all completely interlinked. And you have to think in that systems of systems way of thinking to get to a low carbon output. This is Kim Yates. She is the UK and Europe sustainability lead for Mott MacDonald. I did my PhD years ago before climate change was a thing and sustainability was a thing. So I did a PhD in atmospheric chemistry and I looked at emissions from trees and how uh, you produce um, photochemical smog. But it's um, biogenic photochemical smog. It's this thing called blue haze. Kim then took this experience to Mott MacDonald, initially as an air quality consultant, but now she wears a number of hats. But it's all around carbon, reducing carbon, whether it's in infrastructure, whether it's in the emissions. So yes, wear quite a few hats. I am the Europe and UK lead for sustainability and climate change. And I have a good background in, again, the emissions, but also the climate change and climate change resilience. So that's looking at the effect of all that carbon dioxide that's being chucked out into the atmosphere. (laughs) Kim also looks after transportation projects, helping them reduce their carbon. Recently, she's been working on the National Highways Net Zero Strategy. On top of that, I look after the Moata Carbon Portal. Now, the Carbon Portal is a digital solution for calculating your carbon within infrastructure projects. You're getting a bit of a theme here. So it calculates the carbon within your infrastructure project uh, and that crosses different sectors like transportation, water, energy, etc. And the whole premise of it is to take years and years of carbon knowledge and make it accessible to anybody using this software platform called Moata and we've linked to it in the show notes. It helps designers make decisions and quickly see the carbon implications. Kim is an expert on decarbonisation in transport, but she thinks Grant Shapp's assertion that we won't have to sacrifice the things we enjoy doing may hold some weight, but that it will need a subtle approach. Because you think about it, nobody wants to stop doing the stuff that they like. Or it's... I suppose it's about making low carbon ways of doing things more attractive, more cost efficient. And again, it's um, I think it's it's more along the lines of 
nudge theory, trying to nudge people in the right direction. If you say thou shalt do X, Y and Z, I don't know about you, I will sit there and go, I think you'll find I won't be doing X, Y and Z. But if it's more attractive for me to do X, Y and Z, then I'm more likely to do it. it. Tends to normally revolve around cost and making it more economically viable for you to to catch the train. I can't see us pulling people away from roads. I can see people going, oh gosh, that's very congested out there. Uh, maybe not, I'll catch the train. It's a question more for psychologists and nudge therapists rather than the engineers. But what does Kim think about the current rush of activity around hydrogen? I just really love the technology and I love how fast it's progressing. And I really do think it's, it's going to be the way forward. The Department for Transport is putting a lot of weight behind battery technology. But green hydrogen is potentially the key to this decarbonised web of transport and activity. I don't suppose anybody remembers, apart from really old people like me, um, the VHS and Betamax discussions. For our younger listeners, before MP3s and other digital media, there were DVDs. And before DVDs, there were videotapes. In the late 1970s and 1980s, there was a format war in the videotape space between VHS and Betamax. VHS won. There are companies investing in hydrogen, hydrogen fuel cells for future transport. There's also the EV bucket where everybody's investing in EVs. To my mind, it's still half and half. The jury's still out from my perspective. What I'm seeing within hydrogen and the hydrogen market itself is that is being turbocharged at the moment for green hydrogen. And I'm seeing this on a global basis that hydrogen, again, is it's a nice clean fuel if it's produced in the right way uh, again. And I mean, I, I think it's something that we should be watching very, very closely and being ahead of the game. But it's not just about vehicles on the road. We need to think about heavy transport, shipping especially. See episode 117, How Sales Could Save Shipping, for an explanation of the bunker fuels used by modern shipping. I don't know if, if you've ever seen the satellite images of, of the Earth. Um, you'll actually see the trails from the ships as they go through the sea. From an air quality perspective, it, yeah, it's it's not very clean. But I am very aware that the maritime industry is looking at reducing all its its emissions from its fuels. There's an awful lot of investment going into the shipping industry at the moment. And again, it's it's looking at alternative fuels. Hydrogen is an option as well as ammonia. It's in um, there's solar ships coming onto the horizons at the, onto the horizon at the moment. And again, it's all work in progress. But if you if you go back and you look at the trajectories, they are on a net zero trajectory and they want their emission emissions to be reduced considerably. 
and the technology that's been invested in is again like with your um, offshore wind farms makes you very very giddy because it's moving so quickly in this space. And Kim says that across the world everyone is wanting to become net zero. And if you have a product that you're shipping anywhere your net zero journey is very, very dependent on how you ship that product from A to B. So the pressure on the maritime industry is also coming from their clients. And certainly with the clients that we're working with at the moment, they're going to be putting more and more pressure on the shipping industry to make sure that they're reducing their emissions because it affects their net zero journey as well, because they need to look at not just what they can control, but what they can influence to really become net zero. Air travel is the other tough nut to crack from a sustainability perspective. It is one of the most high profile sectors when it comes to emissions. So definitely we think about air travel. From a MOTS perspective, our great, well, in 2019, when everything was was normal, 51% um, of our emissions, our company emissions, were associated with air travel. So we have an invested interest in working with the aviation sector for low carbon aviation. Kim and her colleagues work very closely with the aviation sector. And what we want to be is try to be part of the solution rather than just saying, actually, you're heavily polluting, bye, let's forget about it. So it is something that we're working on. We were one of the one of the consultants that was heavily involved with Heathrow when it stopped in 2020, 27th of February, if I remember rightly. I was the carbon aspect lead at that particular time working on the expansion project and we were working very very closely with Heathrow about how we can do an expansion project in a net zero world and reduce our carbon budgets not just with what we're doing in terms of the infrastructure that we're building but also how we could influence the aviation sector to reduce its carbon so we were working very closely from that perspective in terms of incentivization been looking very heavily at sustainable aviation fuels um, because that's a that's a nice halfway house to try and again decarbonize the aviation sector as fast as you possibly can. Check out episode 113, Food Waste Making a Net Zero Jet Fuel, for a quirky solution with a lot of potential that's currently being developed by the US National Renewable Energy Laboratory. But what is also happening across the aviation sector is the short haul flights. Uh, so Fly Zero initiatives like Fly Zero, et cetera, are working on those short haul flights to make them low or zero carbon. So they're looking at hydrogen planes, electric planes. And again, I think those of us who have been around a long time, I remember a time when I was at school where computers didn't really exist. Mobile phones really only came into existence in um, the 1990s, 1980s, were great big brick things that you couldn't really use. And the way that we use our ingenuity as, as a race is really 
quite remarkable. So I think when you set your mind to something and the aviation industry knows that to have a sustainable business, if you excuse the pun, in the future, uh, they need to decarbonize. And that's the only way that they're going to have a sustainable business. And with all of this activity, and with the net zero pledge from government, Kim says she's optimistic for the future. So when I came back from Australia, way back in 2019, the net zero target in the UK had just been announced. And I have never been in an environment like it, where there has been so much pull to decarbonise and to address, to address climate change across the business, across everything that we do. I've, 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 I've never been in an environment like this. So actually going out there, making that bold statement of we are going to be net zero by 2050 is a challenging goal to hit. And it has, from my perspective, being a climate change carbon specialist, made my life incredibly easy in the UK. But what we're finding is that we are working in the absence of policy and policy is catching up on how to implement it. It's going very fast uh, and I'm very aware that certainly we've all had a little bit of a distraction over the recent years. So I think government is doing everything that it can do. It can always do more, but actually setting those bold targets in the first place means that you have to be living under a rock not to know that this is hitting us and that you need to do something. So it has made life a lot easier, but there's always more that you can do. In this series, we've been speaking with some of the industry experts who will be watching COP26 most closely. So what do they think of government policy as it stands? Here's Owen from the CCC again. I think we've seen a lot of progress in this space in, in recent years. I think we're, particularly on transport, I think there is a, there is a pretty coherent viewpoint now in terms of how how, how the sector can be decarbonized it, it's potentially taken a while to get there. There meaning basically the transport decarbonization plan. Which seems quite a very kind of coherent document in terms of laying out the narrative for what sort of levels of ambition we need in order to decarbonize this sector, what sort of what sort of approaches, what sort of technologies, and it really importantly, I think, beginning to move on to the actual business of delivering that and implementing it, because the biggest concern we've had in recent times is around the focus on, well, there's been a lot of, a lot of ambition, but it hasn't to date always necessarily been backed up by concrete delivery commitments. And so we're, we're pleased that we're beginning to see that, certainly on the transport side, that sort of move from, move from ambition to policy to, to practical implementation. As for practicalities from COP, Owen wants the delegates to remember the year. We're now into the 2020s, obviously, and so 
what we've we've termed this a crucial decade because if we're talking about emissions reductions by the mid-century we're not actually that far away from that now so if we're going to actually deliver that if we're going to actually achieve that it's sort of like my like i said we need to go beyond just talking about the ambition into actually concrete serious action and so what we want to see from COP would be sort of twofold. We want to see that ambition restated, reconfirmed, emphasized, strengthened, expanded, extended. But we also want to see concrete commitments to turning that into, into action. We want to see kind of, in a sense, kind of delivery implementation decisions, decisions for how, for, in a sense, it is that question of how rather than the what. We sort of broadly know what we need to do. The IPCC report has laid out what the risks are if we don't do it. But now we need to start taking those decisions around how we do it and what the actual, what the actual implementation of this looks like. For listeners who haven't read it, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's sixth assessment report from August of this year warned that we are now seeing a code red for humanity. We've linked to the report in our show notes. So in November this year, leaders from around the world and their negotiators will come to Glasgow for what will be the world's biggest ever climate conference. And at that conference, we'll be telling them about our transport decarbonisation plan, the Prime Minister's 10-point plan, and the leadership that the UK is showing on the world stage to help decarbonise our planet. World leaders are repeatedly signalling that COP is our last best chance. But with key players dropping out or uncertain, what will happen if it is not everything we hope for? Here is Kim again. What I'm seeing globally is that actually, I think we will respond anyway and we'll do stuff anyway. So a good example of this is looking at the infrastructure carbon review as an industry, looking at embodied carbon, what we can do to to reduce our carbon from infrastructure is that industry has been responding in the absence of any policy from anybody um, and are moving in that direction. So actually there's a, the governments have a role to play, private industry has a role to play. And it's it's all about that leadership and making sure that we're all going in the same direction and making those bold decisions. And they are bold decisions and they are really difficult conversations and you have to make that choice. Good luck to everyone involved in COP and to everyone who gets involved after. Engineering Matters is a production of Rebe Media. This episode was written and hosted by me, Alex Conacher. My co-host was Rian Owen. Sound Engineering by Ross McPherson. Series Supervision by John Young. And our own decider and provider is Rory Harris. Special thanks to our episode partner, Mott McDonald, and to the Climate Change Committee. Thank you for listening. 
You can find Engineering Matters on all podcast apps, on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media, on Twitter, on Facebook, and on LinkedIn.